Hello, and welcome to the City of Truth. Episode 14, Providence and Destiny. We are nearing the end now. We needed to address the question of Christianity because my beautiful idea takes place within a certain framework of understanding about the nature of God and his relation to mankind. Now, Christianity obviously has a wide variety of frameworks itself, and if at some point in the future I choose to continue the podcast after my big idea and a decent-sized break, then we will get into that as well. But by at least establishing this much, and taking an orthodox and traditional conception of Christian theology, we can touch upon the topic of providence and destiny. From this point on, I intend to assert these concepts. From this point on, we will take Christianity as a given. Afterward, if I continue, I will go back and provide evidence for traditional theology in a rational Christian-based system. 14.1. What is providence? We've all heard the term providence, but I suspect most people don't really have a good working definition of it. Here's the basic idea. There are actually two orders to the world that God has established. The first is the natural order, and the second is the providential order. The natural order is entirely general. Each thing is part of a larger category, and has its form, so that it can express that nature and apply itself to that particular purpose. Raindrops fall, beavers build dams, societies enact laws to provide for domestic well-being, the sun shines, and so on. All these forces and natures come together to form an impressive and cohesive whole, a sort of meta-stable universal system, where, at least for a very long time, things are self-sustaining. It really is quite impressive. Good work, God. But the natural order, as I said, is general, which means that this system only applies in general, and objects attain their end only generally. Beavers generally build dams, but this particular beaver got eaten by a mountain lion. Pine cones generally become trees, but some portion of them are decorated by elementary school kids with googly eyes. Laws generally provide for the good, but sometimes they're really, really stupid. And so on. The natural order then provides all that is necessary for the general welfare of mankind, but not what is necessary or what's best for each individual man. What's necessary or best for each individual man falls under the heading of providence. This is the ordering of all things by God toward their end as he actually intends it, not just for that object's nature. If a kid slaps some googly eyes on a pinecone, it will never achieve its little pinecone dreams. But from all eternity, God intended that particular pinecone to become a child's decoration. So even if it fails to achieve its natural end, it succeeds in fulfilling some other higher purpose to which it is subordinated. Though don't ask me what the higher purpose is for googly eyes on a pinecone. For an example, think of a soldier in World War II. He's trained to fight and is enlisted as regular infantry. On the day of his first real battle, communications are knocked out. It turns out he was in track back in high school and is a fast runner. He's given a message by his commander and sent to relay it to another platoon. He runs as fast as he can and delivers the message, but in the process gets shot and eventually dies. As a soldier, he never fought in a battle. He was supposed to be the regular infantry, and his job was to go shoot the enemy. He failed at that. 
but no one would consider him a failure. He was a good soldier in the broader sense, in the sense that he aided the war effort. Whether he ever personally shot a Nazi and did what infantry ordinarily do doesn't matter. There was a higher goal, the overall war effort, to which he contributed, and so he died heroically and successfully. This is often what is meant by that phrase offered by Jesus, that we ought to obey the spirit rather than the letter of the law. Any particular law was given for a purpose, to achieve some greater good. But there may be times when strictly obeying the law as it is written may actually be contrary to its broader intention. We are supposed to attend church on Sundays, for instance. But if we break that obligation to help bring a dying man to the hospital, are we actually failing in our duty? No. We're fulfilling a higher duty, by being the kind of person that church, by grace, is supposed to help us become. This is how providence works. The natural ends of objects often fail. They are not reached. This or that beaver is eaten before he lives the life of ordinary beaverness. The grand dream for some cathedral is never achieved, and the project is scaled back to something less impressive and modest. A pinecone rots away in some drawer until it's thrown away by a now 22-year-old young woman who can't even remember what class she made it in. Each individual story feels defeating, and sad, and in our personal lives can be quite troubling. Very often we think our lives are supposed to go one way, and they turn out another. But it doesn't actually have to be defeating. Or sad. If God is omnipotent, and he is all-knowing, and he cares for the particulars of human life as Christianity proposes, then every time there is a failing in the order of nature, there is a success in the order of providence. God only allows these deviations from a lower good because a higher one is attained. Now we almost never see what that higher end is, and the sheer scale and complexity of the universe means that we don't even sufficiently understand the ground rules well enough to even attempt an explanation. We're actually really, really small and ignorant. You need to be at least half mad to think that you can discern every purpose to every element of our universe at every moment. These concepts come down to us largely as clichés. When God closes a door, he opens a window. I think that sentiment generally gets interpreted too naturally. Look, God cared more about his son than anyone else who ever lived, and he was crucified. The greatest saints have often died in similar ways. There is no guarantee in Christianity that because God loves us, nothing bad will ever happen to us. To think so is just to put a naively happy mask over the reality. I'll just come right out and say it. Sometimes God wants bad things to happen to us. Obviously, when he does, he has perfectly justifiable reasons for doing so, and he knows it is in our long-term interest. He doesn't cause them to happen, but he does permit them. He does, sometimes, want terrible things to happen. How do I know? Because they happen. He can stop anything he wants, at any time he wants, by a countless variety of means. No one slips something past him that he missed, and we won't understand why in each individual case. I don't mean to be discouraging. I think by the time we get to my beautiful idea, that will be clear. But we have to accept providence for what it is. God has a plan. This plan covers every detail of everything that will ever happen. He doesn't cause evil, but he does allow it to happen when he knows that the end result will be better than if it never happened. And sometimes those end results might be 400 years in the future. By knowing who and what God is, we can be confident that this is how it works. And sometimes, knowing our weakness, he does give us a peek at that order to restore our trust. But as he was being stoned to death, 
St. Stephen saw Christ in heaven awaiting him. He did not see the conversion of St. Paul brought about by his prayer. We've been given the ultimate example of good coming from evil through the crucifixion. We subordinate all lesser examples to that case. We should be optimistic, but not naive. God doesn't promise to spare us every trouble, but to give us the strength to endure them. None of us make it out of this thing alive, but many a martyr has died with a smile on his face. In fact, providence is a rather beautiful thing. It means that nothing is wasted. No one is unimportant. No life is meaningless. No one suffers for nothing. 14.2 Tragic Perspective The Bible provides us with examples of this as well. It shows us all sorts of horrid things that happen to people for the purpose of teaching us. Now, it might seem that a moral fable is a poor repayment for the suffering these people endured. But remember that the Bible is the most influential work ever written. The story of Cain and Abel, for instance, shows us the dangers of blaming others for our failings, of letting jealousy consume us, and many other moral lessons. Abel didn't know any of this. One day he was out in a field, and then his brother hit him with a rock, and then he died. That's some tough luck. But it may be the case that the story of Cain and Abel stopped a thousand similar crimes from happening in the future. This is what I mean about our understanding being so limited. We don't know the counterfactuals, so all we can do is construct hypotheticals. What if, for instance, Shakespeare's brother was intensely jealous of him? But what if the cultural effects of the story of Cain and Abel were such that, over thousands of years, the only reason Shakespeare's brother didn't murder him was because of that story? We simply can't know. Another good example is when Moses saw the golden calf. At that moment, so the story goes, something like 25,000 Israelites were cast into hell. You'd think something like that would leave an impression on a people. Forget whether the story is true or not for the moment. Let's only consider that the story was well known. The ancient Israelites were either the only monotheists in town or very nearly so. This was a group of largely illiterate people who still had a really hard time believing that the sun wasn't a god and were pretty stoked about this new bronze stuff they'd been hearing so much about. They were primitive and weird and surrounded by a bunch of really scary people that they thought had magic powers. Worshipping a golden idol, to them, was as natural a thing as texting someone is to us. What would it take to get our society to collectively stop texting? Probably a story about a fiery doom awaiting us if we did it. We also have a tendency to perceive death with a sense of finality. We see Abel getting a raw deal. Brother, rock, bonk, dead. Stinks to be Abel. But not so fast. Cain now had that on his soul, while Abel died a great guy. Whatever awaits us in the world to come, surely Abel has a better time of it than Cain. He had to suffer getting bonked for about 30 seconds, one time, and things have been pretty nice ever since. Cain had to struggle with the guilt of murdering his brother, and then probably went somewhere not so nice. So who, really, had it all work out? Maybe Abel wouldn't change a thing about his situation. Maybe, today, he's even in a way happy about it. The same way we can all be happy about bad things that worked out for the better in the end. Perhaps the value of a moral tale, or noble suffering, is far greater than we recognize. This, again, shows the problem of our limited knowledge. If horrible tragedies are a merely temporary affair, and things are more than compensated afterward, 
perhaps the very victims of tragedy are actually fine with it. If we believe what the Bible tells us, that appears to be the case. It's only from the perspective of annihilation that tragedy becomes unjustifiable. 14.3 The Order of Intellect The second thing to understand is that in the order of intellect, things work backwards. What do I mean by that? Well, in the mind, one first determines the end they want to achieve. Then you select the means that appear most suited to that end. If providence is the enacting of the divine plan for creation, God has some end in mind that he intends for creation. He decided that first, in our manner of speaking. Obviously, it's God, so it's not like he sat down with a pen and paper and hashed this thing out in an afternoon. It's just contained in the divine wisdom. Anyway, he has ordained some end for creation. Then he determined that other, secondary objects would need to be created to facilitate that end. He creates the means to achieve it. An example might help, as always. Imagine you are making a decision. You've decided that you want to become Houston's best tap dancer. It happens. We all got dreams, kid. So you have your end. But now you need to enact the means. You decide to rent a moving van and buy some tap shoes. Maybe get some lessons. Beforehand, you had no desire for a moving van. And if you didn't want to be a tap dancer, you had no need for tap shoes. Your desire for those things is only as a means to an end. Well, all the same stuff applies to creation, too. There are primary things that God intends to accomplish with creation, and secondary things that he created to assist with those primary things. How do we know which is which? One of the nice things about God is that he's pretty sensible. He doesn't do things superfluously. He has an intention behind every nature. The nature of each thing relates to its purpose, as we've considered before. So how do we know what is primary in creation? Simple. What lasts forever? What has the natures that are meant to continue perpetually? And what, by its nature, will pass away? So we are saying that human souls, and perhaps forms, and whatever else may be immortal, is tied to the primary purpose of creation. When everything else is past, they can remain. We will have more to say about that in the next episode. But what is that purpose exactly? And why has God chosen the means that he has to direct our lives? There is so much pain and suffering in life. Why would God want that? Well, let's try and think on this logically. Nature relates to purpose, as we've said. But what is the nature of man? He has a soul and a body. And his soul consists of intellect and will. That human soul is what makes him distinct from the animals. It's what is special about us. So whatever our purpose is, it must relate to that which makes us unique. It relates to our soul. Another element to the nature of our soul is that it can make free choices. When we desire something, as we've discussed before, we desire the good in that thing. Every object in existence contains some good, and that is what we desire. But that good is not the good. Perhaps human suffering is the necessary means to draw us away from the lower good that we have chosen and toward the higher good. And perhaps there is something that we are meant to discover, something we are meant to become. And perhaps suffering, nobly endured, provides us with the good we could not otherwise attain. Quote, the consummation of grace, which we call glory, will in very truth be an enduring participation in the very nature of God in his intimate life, 
since it will enable us to behold him and to love him even as he beholds and loves himself. Herein lies the purpose of that divine governance, to show forth the divine goodness which is one day to bestow an eternal happiness upon us and maintain it forever within us. Father Reginald Garajau Lagrange Super Extra Bonus Quote See that I am God, that I am in all things, that I do all things. I lift never my hands from my creation, nor ever shall without end. I lead all things to the end that I ordained for them, from without beginning, by the same might, wisdom, and love whereby I made it. How, then, should anything be amiss? The Visions of St. Julian of Norwich Next week will be a bit different. We won't be considering things in the way of careful reasoning anymore. We have laid the groundwork. We have solid footing, and you know the place to stand. Next week, we look upward to the stars. Next week, we will consider my beautiful idea.